So as Kevin mentioned earlier, we're going to start uh, today our series on uh, the Old Testament book of Numbers. Uh, the text is printed in the bulletin and also uh, up on the screens behind me. Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of God and we should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month. In the second year, after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. From twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers." So um, a little, uh, almost a year ago, as many of you know, my mom died. And in uh, the year since uh, my mom died, I've gotten to spend a lot of time with my dad, who this past winter and spring was diagnosed with cancer and went through cancer treatment with him and uh, just had a, a, a really sweet time this year being with him. In fact, I've probably spent more time with him in the last year uh, than I've, I have in a long time. It's been really great. And um, one of the things uh, that we talked about uh, just a few weeks ago is uh, he finds himself in a very interesting situation. He's just completed uh, uh, treatment uh, for cancer, and he feels pretty good. And he's walking and uh, doing stuff, goes to worship every Sunday, uh, piddles in his yard, uh, corrects the Sunday school teachers at church, you know, just doing the stuff he's been doing his whole life, you know, and uh, uh, he's doing really well. Uh, and he and I were talking recently, and one of the things that he struggles with, though, mightily, is um, he can see the promised land. He can see it. And he anticipates who's there and what's there. Uh, And he wonders about what it is he's supposed to do until he gets there. Um, I wouldn't exactly say that he's living in the wilderness, but he is kind of trying to figure out what he does uh, between now and then. Um, he's, uh, he'll, if, if he uh, lasts, he'll be 88 in February. And so he knows, you know, he's closer to the end than he is to the beginning. You know, I don't think he thinks he's going to do another 88 years. And, and it's remarkable as far as we can tell from the genealogy study that we've done, he's lived longer than any man in our family by far, because Shelby men tend to explode and burn out, uh, early, <laughs> wonder why. Um, so, um, but he uh, struggles to f- figure out what God has for him right now. It's a good struggle, uh, a hopeful struggle. The truth is, every one of us lives there. The promised land may not seem that close to us, but we are between the great act of God's salvation of us and the culmination of that in glory. 
Uh, and what do we do? How do we live? How do we think? What does God have to say to us in that period of time? Well, the book of Numbers records for us uh, the people of God between the great act of his salvation of them, of taking them from Egypt until he brings them permanently into the promised land. And so it, I can think of no better book or no better thing for us to talk about and to think about than in the very confusing and troubling and difficult time that we live. Many of you uh, struggle with a wilderness existence because of your sin you feel left out. And many of us struggle uh, corporately as the church with our sin to understand and to see how God might still pursue his mission and be at work. And so this book is going to instruct us and tell us uh, much about how we live and, and what we do and what God has to say to us uh, in this time of wilderness living. So let's, uh, let's dive in here this morning. Yeah, there you go, Becky. So uh, the first two verses that we've read here tell us very much. It tells us who spoke, to whom God spoke, where it was said, when it was said, and what was to be done. So the first thing you have to come at about this is, is that, you know, we read this book and, and the, the English version of this book says that the title of the book is Numbers because it's about census and there's a lot of counting that goes on in this book. But in, in the Hebrew Bible, what the, the title of this book is, The Words God Spoke in the Wilderness. Right. And so so what you what you have to see about this is, is that the very center of this book is not so much a count or a census, although that's a big project that this book is about. The the real thing, the real theme of the book is God speaking to his people as they are at the foot of Mount Sinai in the wilderness before they make the trek uh, to the promised land. So one of the things that we have to understand about this is, is that our God speaks. Right. And and one of the things that you have to see about this is, is that the context in which God is speaking here is so important, because remember, what do we know about these people? We know that the children of Jacob, because of a worldwide famine, went into Egypt and God had prepared a place for them in Egypt through Joseph. And there they were fed and there they were cared for. And there, quite frankly, they prospered. In fact, the book, uh, the first uh, uh, chapter of the book of Exodus tells us that God's promise to Abraham that he would fill the world with his descendants begins to happen. In fact, the, Moses describes it as over those years that the, the land literally swarmed with the, the children of Israel, that there were so many of them, so many that it scared the Egyptians and the Egyptians decided that the only way they could protect themselves from the swarm was to enslave them. And so they enslaved them. And we read uh, a number of times the account of that slavery and the word that's most often used to describe it is that it was better. 400 years, 400 years. And it seemed as if God had forgotten his people. And yet he raises up Moses 
And through ten plagues, delivers his people. They go through the Red Sea. He takes them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there God makes his covenant by giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And we know that while Moses was on the mountain, the people decided for a whole host of reasons that they needed to be like the other nations and have a God that they could see. And so they pressured Aaron and his sister Miriam and they built this golden calf and they said, this, this thing is who brought us out of Egypt. And there were terrible consequences as a result of that. And so here they are still at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God is speaking to these people. Now, I know many of you, when you get mad at someone, you don't speak. Right? I'm going to give you the silent treatment. I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to be cold towards you. I'm not going to speak to you. Until you come to the place where you say to me, Have I done something to offend you? To which you will have the opportunity to respond. What makes you say that? (laughs) Right? These people have offended. They have sinned. And God speaks to them. He is still striving with them. He is still caring for them. He is still revealing himself to them. And he still has a purpose for them. So God here speaks through Moses. Moses would go into the tent of meeting and God would speak to him and tell him what it was he wanted the people to hear. And this this is a, a, a pretty standard way in which God deals with his people. Moses, the great lawgiver, stands between God and his people. We read in the first book, uh, uh, chapter uh, of uh, the book of Hebrews, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So what we read about this is, is that rather than speak to everyone at once, Moses would go into the tent of meeting and God would reveal to him and speak to him what it is that he wanted them to do, what it is that they needed to do next, what it was his heart was for them. And so one of the things that we have to see about this is, is that Jesus Christ fulfills that because Moses, as good as he was, as great as he was, was a failure as a mediator because he could not ultimately deliver these people. But we have a mediator in Jesus Christ who clearly displays to us the heart of God, the message of God for his people. And he speaks clearly to us. He tells us of his grace. He tells us of his purpose. And he tells us that even though for many of us there is much about our lives that is broken, that is that is terrible, that he has not stopped his work with us that he continues to reveal himself and he continues to have a purpose uh, for us and for his people. So not only does, does he speak to these rebellious people through Moses, this is important for us to understand where and when this happened. This happened in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so what we're going to see here is is Numbers is a picture of the life of the church between the great acts of redemption and the final culmination. So he wants us to remember what has happened here. Listen, many of you 
sit here this morning and your biggest struggle is shame. You are ashamed of what you've done or what you haven't done. Many of you are ashamed this morning because you screamed at your children on the way to church. Some of you are ashamed today because of what you did last night. And so what we carry about with us in that is the sense that somehow or other we ultimately become so disqualified that God could no longer reveal himself or speak or work in and through us. The church is a broken mess. And I am here to tell you this morning that every human being, every single human being who has ever lived except for Jesus Christ is a mixed bag and has brokenness and sin and rebellion and ugliness in their lives. And, and, and so for us to think somehow or other that, that the point of what's happening here is, is that somehow or other we must be perfected in a way before God can work in and through us is all wrong. Because the fact is, yes, there are temporal consequences to this sin. There are terrible things that happen as a result of this. But it doesn't stop God. It does not keep him from pursuing his people. It does not keep him from doing his work uh, for them. And it does not keep him from his mission. He has a mission to renew and restore and redeem this world. To draw a people to himself to live with his people and to have his people live with him. And even those people themselves in their wrong-headed, sinful rebellion will not stop that. He will continue to work with his people. Now, another thing to note about this is, is not only who is here and who is speaking, but the timetable. So we read here in Numbers uh, that... Moses went into the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So if you if you do the math and you figure out the stuff that's on the calendar here, that the people arrived at Sinai on the third new moon after the Exodus. So they had been at this mountain now around 11 months. They've been there 11 months. Okay. Um. We, we have a tendency to view history and particularly Bible history in what I call the, um, um, you know, the, the kind of the entertainment way. Like, you know, most 30 minute TV shows on TV really aren't 30 minutes. They're 22 and a half minutes, seven and a half minutes of ads. So we need stuff to move quickly and to wrap up, right? Well, they've been there 11 months after the mess that they made. They've been there 11 months. And I'm sure they're thinking, all right, what's next? What are we doing? What's happening? Well, God hasn't forgotten them. But he has his own timetable in the way in which he is working with them. And so so because of the terrible rebellion, because of the terrible things that have happened there, it has taken some time for them to be able to even be in a place for God to begin this next project that he has for them and, and the work that he has for them and, and, and to remind them that his plan still is to get them to the promised land. Right? Next slide. So... 
he has this project for them. And the project that he uh, has for them is a census of males who will be available and eligible to fight in the army. Now, it's important for us to note a couple of things about this and and uh, to kind of understand what's going on here. Now, this is not the first census. Those of you who have read Exodus before know that in Exodus chapter 30, there was a census. But in that census, it had a different purpose, right? The previous census in Exodus uh, 30 was, for everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upwards shall give to the Lord's offering for the service of the tent of meeting. So here's a second census uh, shortly after this one that was uh, uh, done for the purpose of taxation to raise the money to, to build the tabernacle. Now they are in the process of taking a census to try to understand how many uh, males will be available for the army. How many males will be available for them as they prepare to go uh, uh, in, uh, to the, uh, into the promised land. But it's also important to note about this is that this means that the census was taken through family or clan heads as representatives. So, you know, one of the great things about this, the book of Numbers, is we're not going to have to read all 605,000 names. Okay? 605,000. Right? We're we're actually going to read the names of of clan heads, of tribe heads, right, that that stand and uh, represent uh, these people. So next slide. So you may be thinking, wow, this is dry as dust. What does this flipping have to do with anything in my life? It has everything to do with it. So much, so much, and so much of it is so importantly applicable to us today. Our sin and our rebellion does not keep God from pursuing us and pursuing his mission in the world. You need to believe that. Church, you need to believe that. The church often fails. Often fails. Christians often fail. Often, maybe even more often than not. But that does not cancel out that we are the people of God and that our God strives and works and continues his purpose through us. He still speaks and he has work for us to do. But it's also important for us to note that what's going, much of what happens in Numbers as we read that kind of stark passage from, from 1 Corinthians is this is not a happy time. I mean, God's at work. There is much to be done. But there is a lot of struggle in what is happening, a lot of confusion, a, a, a lot of, of, of trying to figure out how is it that God is going to bring completion and to get glory and to arrive in the promised land with a people that belongs to him. Secondly, what we need to see is, is that we have a mediator who represents God to us and us to God. Now, Moses would go temporarily into the tent of meeting and uh, speak with God. But you have a mediator in Jesus Christ 
who mediates on our behalf and not just that he speaks for us or uh, speaks to God, uh, from God to us, but he actually lays his hand on the judgment seat of God and lays his hand on us and bears in his body the punishment of our sins so that his mediation, his intercession, his work for us is good and permanent and strong. And so that whatever else may be true about us, we have a mediator and our mediator, though Moses would fail, our mediator has not failed and he will not fail. His blood speaks clearly on our behalf. And he represents to us the God who loves us and who gives us our identity as his people. Now, thirdly, there's a part of this story that in our particular cultural context today and in our particular understanding of things should make you a little uncomfortable because this book is largely, a big theme of this book is conflict. The whole point of the census is to raise an army. It's not unlike uh, what uh, we do here with folks when they turn 18 years old. They register with the selective service so that when and if there comes a time where there's conflict, we have a, a resource where we know these people can be our soldiers to fight for us. So preparation for conflict and conflict are much of what life is about, about for the people of God between redemption and the promised land. I would love to tell you, that the life you live, that the life that the church lives is pleasant. Don't you like that word, pleasant? And that doesn't mean that there's never any joy or comfort or pleasantness, but the fact is the church and believers are at war. Now, I know in our context That's a terrible, scary thing to say. But the truth is, Jesus Christ is waging war in and through us right now. Right now, a war rages in the soul of every single one of us. Between the work of Jesus Christ and his spirit and the world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you don't have a sense of that conflict... If you don't have a sense of that going on within you, then something's wrong. But that's not the only conflict. The church itself is in conflict and at war in the world. I confess that often in the history of the church, we have confused that war as a war between warring powers, seeking power over one another. That is not Jesus' war, and that is not the church's war. When I was a kid, we used to sing this hymn uh, in uh, my church uh, that I grew up in. My dad, the first time I ever really thought about this, you know, when you grow up in the church, you sing these songs every Sunday, and you're like, you don't think about them. I remember when uh, hearing this one time, and the, the reason why this, this, bear with me, the reason why this hymn jumped out at me is because when my dad announced it one Sunday as a kid, 
I remember thinking, he said, we're going to stand and sing, lead on, O kinky turtle. (laughs) Kind of like low in the gravy, lay Jesus, you know. (laughs) And so I was like, wow, wow, that's something. And then I read, oh, it's eternal. That's boring. Uh, The other one sounded more interesting. Um, But I fear what has happened to us is that we have lost a sense of the reality of what the church is called to. This hymn says, lead on, O king eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. That's the internal struggle that every believer experiences. For not with swords loud clashing or screaming or beatings, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. We're at war. But our weapon, our weapon, our only weapon, is the love of God spread abroad in our hearts through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how the kingdom advances. That's how the kingdom comes. Now, I want to say to you this morning how this happens and how this works for us is really challenging because I want you to think with me this morning of the most repugnant kind of person or person you can think of. And as you do that, I want you to think of the conflict that the Lord of glory wants to wage with that person through you is a conflict whereby they are one, conquered really, by deeds of love and mercy. Now, I want to tell you something I've thought a a bit about uh, this uh, week and um, something that I think is instructive for us this morning and something I read uh, recently by James uh, K.A. Smith and Tim Keller uh, that, it, that we have already done something this morning in this worship service before we read the scripture, before I preached, to prepare you for this war. And you know what it was? You confessed your sin. And we do that every single Sunday, not just to make ourselves presentable to God, but to remind us that the God we are here to worship forgives his enemies. Of whom we were once. And so we have a war to fight, but it is not a war of power. It is not a war than the way that we, which we tend to think about. And in fact, this war that is described here feels weak. feels really weak. doesn't feel very triumphant. doesn't, doesn't feel like, oh, we're winning. 
right? And yet, and yet, the people in the wilderness cannot get to the promised land without a fight. Without a fight. And so, the, 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 the truth is, what he is doing here in these, this passage is preparing these people and us for that. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, uh, while each of us particularly matters to God, the Lord works through representative heads. Okay, that's what we see here by the identification of these family heads and these clan heads that are going to represent the different groupings. Now, the Bible is full of this. And in fact, the way the Bible presents to us the way the world works is, is that every single one of us is represented by somebody. Somebody stands for us, right? Uh, the, the Apostle Paul uh, points this out to us in Romans chapter 5. So he, he says this, For if by the trespass of the one man, that is Adam, our father, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as though, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what you have to see about this is, is that there are, there are two representatives for the human race. The first Adam, the one who sinned, and by virtue of his sin, as our representative, we sinned with him and we all die. Now, I used to teach uh, uh, for years and years and years uh, third graders in Sunday school. And let me tell you something. If you want to make a third grader mad, tell him that Adam's sin is the reason why he sins and the reason why he's going to die. Because third graders have an overdeveloped sense of fairness. That's not fair. I'm not having that. None of that. That's not fair. How could God do that? That's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. It's It's not because if it was fair, you'd be left alone. But you have another representative and that representative is Jesus Christ. And because he is your representative, because of his act of righteousness, because his act of obedience, you have a representative, you stand with him and all that he gained for you is now yours. That's who you are. He's your representative. He's the one you stand behind. He's the one that stands before you. He's the one in whose clan, in whose tribe, in whose family you belong. He represents you. And so just, you're right. It is terribly unfair. Praise God it's unfair. The fact of the matter is 
that if it was about fairness, we'd be left in Adam, but we're not. We have the second Adam who has been, who has done righteousness on our behalf and we have that righteousness. We have a hope. And so it is good to be represented. It is good to have one who stands for us, who not only mediates for us, but represents us and represents us as holy and righteous before the Father because of what he has done for us. Listen, you know, the, the way the Bible sees it, either, either you're under Adam, either you're represented by him, or you're represented by Christ. And so this whole procedure that we will go through of, of seeing these heads and these representatives, we need to understand it and see ourselves as our lives, our persons, our identities hid in that representative. And what he has done for us uh, is ours and we belong to him. So what we need to do now is we need to pray that God would help us to trust him with that. And uh, that the deeds of love and mercy that Jesus has accomplished for us would be and mark us as his people. Let's pray. Lord, we need a sense of this today. Thank you that uh, we have uh, this story. We have this picture of your work uh, in and through your people. Lord, I pray today for those who are ashamed and who are overwhelmed by their brokenness, that you would remind them uh, that you have always pursued broken and uh, people who are mixed bags. Help us in that, we pray. Lord, we also uh, recognize today uh, that our world is so confusing, so full of conflict. And Lord, we confess that we are confused quick to conflict about the wrong things and in the wrong way. I pray that you would help us in that. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember uh, that you are the one who forgives and that you are the one who pursues uh, and conquers enemies through love, through sacrifice, as the hymn says, through deeds of love and mercy. Would you do that? And Lord, we, we pray today for those who hide from you, who believe that their sin and rebellion has uh, put them in a place where they're just stuck and that you no longer have a purpose for them. Lord, I pray that uh, you, through your son, Jesus Christ, would remind them of the power of the cross the power of the resurrection and the hope that we have in sins forgiven and righteousness given. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be with us, strengthen and encourage us, we pray, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.